Every year about this time uh, at Life Church, they do a four-week series called At the Movies. Uh, Pastor Craig chooses scenes from a popular movie, or uh, sometimes maybe not so popular, and relates that to the Lord and to our life as a believer. Now, we go to the Ocean, Ocean City, lived there too long. We go to the Oklahoma City campus of New Life Church. Uh, it was the original campus, and I believe it's the largest campus. And each campus is decorated like a different movie. Uh, the the um, decorations this year at our campus is the Wizard of Oz. And I can tell you, they really go all out. They've got a cornfield. They've got um, there's a scarecrow. They have Uncle Henry and Auntie M's house. And underneath the house, uh, the feet of the, the wicked witch. And there's even a tornado that moves. I mean, it goes around and it moves, I don't know, probably about 15 feet anyways on this track that they have. Now, I know that there's uh, several people that uh, don't normally go to Life Church. They go elsewhere, uh, but they they come to Life Church for at the movies. So is this a, a gimmick of some kind? I, mean, I think a lot of people would probably say so, but it's so much more. Uh, it's an evangelistic tool. Uh, this past Sunday, uh, it, it was crazy, the number of people that were there. Uh, our one son is kind of in charge of the the life kids, which is birth to sixth grade. Normally, in those classes uh, for that 10 o'clock service, they have about 260, 280 maybe. They had 380 something. My wife is in the um, three-year-olds, and they normally have mid-20s. At 45. Okay, so it's a time to get people to come to church that normally wouldn't come to church and to present the gospel message to some unsaved people. Say, that's what the church is supposed to be doing, is sharing Jesus. And it can come in many forms, and this is just one that Life Church has chosen to do. This is a 20th year that they've done it. Let's pray. Father, I just give you thanks that you have not changed. Uh, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. There was no beginning of you. There will be no end of you. And I praise you for that. But Lord, the church has changed. Okay, over the years, things are done differently. Uh, the music has changed. Uh, the, the seating has changed. Uh, the way things are presented has changed, but the message, the message stays the same. And so, Father, I praise you for that. So, Lord, as we look at your message today, uh, I just pray that someone will get their eyes opened uh, to what it is you want to do in their life. So, Lord, do just that. Open our eyes, our ears, our minds, and just let your Holy Spirit work. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we can find out a lot about a person when we know where they came from, where they 
live or lived. Now, I grew up in a small town. Everyone knew everyone's business. Uh, and this is maybe similar to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. It was a small, insignificant town, about maybe two to 400 people, and it altogether only took up about 10 acres. Uh, there was one spring for water. Uh, a lot of the people were farmers, and then others that supported them. Uh, they spoke Aramaic, and Jesus would have studied the, the Torah there as he was growing up. Now, tradesmen in not just Nazareth, but um, at that time, uh, the tradesmen would be recognized by symbols that they wore. The carpenters uh, stuck wood chips behind their ears intentionally. Uh, tailors stuck needles into their tunics. And dyers, D-Y-E-R-S, wore colored rags. And on the Sabbath, these were all left at home. But a house at that time was probably small, uh, maybe brick or mortar. Uh, could have even been carved into sandstone. Okay, certainly nothing like what we enjoy today. So Jesus and his family lived a rather simple life, probably just getting by. And Jesus's family, now, who did that include? Okay, Luke tells us a little bit about his family in chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. It says, Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. And he replied, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Now Luke and none of the other Gospels tell us whether or not Jesus actually saw his mother and brothers at that time. Now, some believe that Jesus was an only child of Mary, claiming that Joseph must have been married before and was widowed, and that these brothers that it was talked about were stepchildren. Um, I don't go along with that, um, because I believe they were half-brothers and sisters, that um, Jesus had. But this kind of put some holes in the thought that uh, Jesus was Mary's only child. In Mark 6, verses 1 through 6, it says, we find out a little bit more about the family. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that he's been given? What are the remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. 
he was amazed at their lack of faith. No faith equals no miracles. Okay, in verse 3, Mark gives us the names of Jesus' brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and mentioned that Jesus had at least two sisters because they said his sisters are there. Now, he may have been the only one of the family to leave home, and that wouldn't have been uncommon that you know, where you were born and grew up was pretty much where you spent most of your life. But it's also assumed that Joseph must have died since he wasn't mentioned here. Uh, he's last mentioned in Luke chapter 2. Now, even Jesus' family had little or no faith in him. In Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. We don't know who from the family said this. I bet it was one of the brothers, though. Out of his mind. That's a pretty harsh thing to say about someone especially family. Now, we're not sure how Jesus was seen by Mary. She was told who her son was going to be in Luke chapter 1 with a miraculous pregnancy. And then in Luke 2, when Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple to be circumcised, Simeon and Anna were both there to testify to who Jesus was. But then later in Luke 2, when Jesus was 12 years old, as they had gone for the Passover and everybody was heading back to Nazareth, except Jesus. Okay, they looked for him for a few days and they couldn't find him. And so they went back to Jerusalem. And when Joseph and Mary found him and Jesus explained what he was doing, it says, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Yet in John 2, the wedding at Canaan, she knew that he was a miracle worker as he made the wine out of water. But I want to focus more on one of his brothers, James. We saw where James briefly appeared a few times not believing in Jesus, although not mentioned by name. So can we imagine <laughs> what it must be like to have the Messiah of the world for a brother? Now, you may have had an older sibling that it seemed like everyone thought that he or she was special, that they were just so smart. They were such a great athlete in three or four sports. They'd memorized the New Testament. They were musically talented and could play several inches and sang like an angel. And you found yourself being compared to that sibling by your parents. Why don't you get the grades like your brother did? And your teachers, you know, your sister never would have acted that way. And your coaches, you know, 
Well, your brother, he was the best athlete we ever had. Why aren't you more like him? She would never do that. I was fortunate. My brother, who was eight years older than me, was a real mess. And praise the Lord, I was never compared to him. But the Savior, the Messiah you were being taught about, for James, you know, to think, you know, I'm learning all this stuff about the coming of the Messiah, and he sleeps in the same room with me. No pressure there, right? Let's see what can be found out about James. Well, first, there's the book of James. And how do we know it was that James? There's four men in the New Testament named James. The first was the disciple, John's brother. Okay, and we hear a lot about him. Well, the book of James is dated uh, around the early to mid-60s. And James was beheaded in 44. And the other two Jameses were not men who had any real standing to become an author. James, John's brother, is mentioned often as part of the inner circle, but that's pretty much all it says about him. In James 1.1, he says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's quite a switch from, he's out of his mind. Why? What brought about the change? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about Jesus' appearances after the resurrection. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, 6 and 7. Says, he says this, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Okay, the way Paul states this is certainly when he's talking about James, he's not talking about James Zebedee's son or the other James, the son of Alphaeus, because he mentioned James separate from the apostles. Okay, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Okay, so this is James, Jesus' half-brother. As we saw earlier, James had not been a believer before the resurrection. Paul gives more testimony to the fact that James is Jesus' brother. Galatians 1, verses 18 to 20. It says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, or Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing is no lie. Okay, so Paul is saying, hey, I saw the Lord's brother. You know, his brother James. I didn't see anybody else except Peter and him. And I'm telling the truth. Luke talks about James in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. It says, The whole assembly became silent 
as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us now how God first intervened to those, to, excuse me, to choose a people for his name in the, from the Gentiles. So he goes on to speak about the prophets and their prophecies and Amos and the other places. And Luke mentions James in Acts 12 and 21. So now that we have James on board, that he's become a follower of the risen Christ, don't you wonder how you maybe felt about his earlier disbelief and actions? I wonder too, what Mary had told her children about the miracle birth. You know, there's just a lot of questions I want to get answered when I get to heaven. Well, as I mentioned before, we have the book of James, and it's an often quoted book. Uh, you may not realize it. You may be quoting it and not really know that you are. In James 1, 2, it can be hard to grasp if it's taken out of context. Because James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Raise your hand if you enjoy going through trials. Yeah, me neither. Okay? I mean, I know that they're going to come, but I'm certainly not looking forward to it. And I know that they're going to come maybe tomorrow, maybe next year, maybe 10 years from now, but I know those trials are going to come. But when you add that to verses 3 and 4 and continue, it says you can see what James had in mind because he says, let me put two back with it again and start with two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perse perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, that makes verse 2 make sense. Okay, As believers, we know that our faith is going to be tested. And that's a good thing. Okay, Maybe when we're going through it, we don't see it that way. But it's a good thing. Okay, It's just like your, your muscles. Okay, You need to work on your muscles to, to strengthen them. You need to work on your faith to strengthen it. Well, James addresses this again in verse 12 of the first chapter. He said, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, verse 5 is one that's often quoted. Again, I'm staying in chapter 1. But regrettably, it's often quoted out of context also. Because it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Okay, I need more wisdom, and I'm sure you do too. 
but it's something that we can't get too much of. So now add verses 6 to 8 to that verse 5. Because it says, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Wow. That's kind of cut into the chase, isn't it? Okay. Believe and not doubt. We can take that into all the parts of our lives, especially our spiritual part of our lives. Well, let's take a look at verses 13 to 15. Okay, James says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Okay, when people feel that God is tempting them with something, I think sometimes they, they get that from the Lord's Prayer, where it says, and lead us not into temptation. Okay, I believe what James is saying here, and what Jesus was saying in Matthew 6.13, is this. God lets us make our own choices. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, and sometimes they're pretty ugly. It's our prayer that God will stop us before we fall into those temptations. Okay? Before we follow up on some of the poor choices that we've made. Moving on to verses 19 and 20. James says, my dear brothers and sisters, Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Quick to listen and slow to speak. That's a toughie because, you know, we all want to be heard. You know, this definitely includes me. I find myself quicker to speak now than maybe earlier in my life. But I think I've got a good reason. Okay? Because if I don't say what's on my mind, I'm going to forget what I wanted to say. So I keep rehearsing in my mind what I want to say, and I'm not listening. And the anger part? Just go online, and you will see many, many, many examples of this. Road rage, parking lot rage, People cutting in line, accidental touching, just walking by somebody and you accidentally touch them and it ends up into an argument or a fight. So to too many people, the answer to too many problems is violence against teachers, family members, strangers, neighbors. Okay, that's what they've seen and that's what they believe. And that's how you, they think that you can solve things. Okay, on to verses 22 to 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. 
do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the law, perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Okay, now I know some women say that they'd like to forget what they saw in the mirror. Okay, but that's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about how, you know, you can do devotions, you can spend a lot of time reading scripture, but if you don't do what it says, well, I won't say you've wasted your time, but you sure didn't get out of it what you should have. Okay, I believe that the church, at least in the United States, for the most part, is biblically illiterate. Okay, I know I've talked before about the quiz that I had given different places where I served. And people that were in their 50s, 60s, 70s, that had gone to church forever. I mean, started out as a little kid in Sunday school and went their whole life. Couldn't get half of the questions correct. Now, let me give you a few of the questions, okay? Because, you know, they're not any great theological things of any kind. Okay, one question was, name the four Gospels. Who baptized Jesus? Which disciple did Jesus call the rock? Who is described as a man after God's own heart? In what city was Jesus born? Well, then I asked if different books were in the Old Testament or the New Testament or not in the Bible at all. Okay, a few of them were Zephaniah, Jude, Paul, Joel, Thomas, and a few others. And it was pitiful. I'm telling you, I mean, there was people that were leaders in the church, people that were teaching Sunday school, and they're not getting half of these right. Okay, you know, I would figure up the overall score, and it would be in the 50s. And that's because it was brought up by the two or three people that got all or almost all of them correct. So let me finish with verses 26 and 27. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Some people like to call what they're saying about somebody else is just, we're just fellowshipping. You know, I think God looks at it and says, nah, I think you're gossiping. And I know he's not very impressed, no matter what you want to call it. And as far as the widows and orphans, we're told often in both the New Testament and the Old Testament that that's one of the things that we need to be doing. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. 
And Lord, this message may have not been anything new to the person that's listening, but maybe a reminder of something that they need to be reminded of. And so, Father, I just pray that you'll open their ears and just help them to be reminded and help them to put it into practice. And maybe on their own, uh, just read through James chapter 1 again on their own and, and see what it is that the Messiah's brother had to say. And Father, I know there may be someone that's listening that doesn't know you and that they've got problems in their life and they've been trying to find solutions in so many different ways and places and all, but they haven't looked to you. They haven't looked to the place where they can get the answers that they need. So, Father, I pray that you'll draw them to you today and that they will realize that they need your son Jesus in their life. Lord, let them pray like this. Dear Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. Lord, forgive me and love me and help me. Help me to be who you need me to be. Help me to love others the way you love us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.